Thank you, Marcia. Um, welcome, guys. Happy to happy to see you here this morning. My name's Nick. If I have not met you, um, which I see a few new faces, I would love to meet you afterwards. And uh, if you'd like to go to lunch or something like that, I uh, think I might be available. So that would be that'd be a lot of fun. Um, let's see. I we. I'm going to get us right in. We, we could open up. If you don't have a Bible, um, go ahead and raise your hand, and, and some of the ushers bring a Bible by. Uh, we're kind of Bible nerds here. We, we appreciate God's Word. Love for you to have His Word in front of you. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, as usual, feel free to keep it. It's our gift to you. Um, and if you want to give it away, take it give it away. That's what you got to love in the book of Acts, right? As the church is increasing, Luke records it as the word is increasing. So this idea of as, as we're giving away the word, the church is increasing. And as the church is increasing, it's his word that's increasing. So give, give the Bibles away. I would love it if we ran out. Um, but for those of us here uh, that have Bibles now, let's open up to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read uh, verse 67 down to verse 80. And can I just say thank you to Patty, Jason, um, and Donald. I really appreciated the worship. It was really ministering to me. And some of those songs that you chose, wherever Patty is, she's not here, but that was awesome. I really love singing with you guys. Love singing with you guys. Now we're going to get into a song by uh, Zechariah, actually, in this text. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. Chapter 1, verse 67. Let's go ahead and read it. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve Him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. And you, child, speaking to John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew, became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray, guys. God, what a privilege it is. What a privilege it is 
to be here on the first day of the week, the day of our Lord's resurrection. And just remember the victory that you accomplished the redemption that you have worked for your people, for us, for me. We gather now joining the heavenly assembly, the myriad upon myriad of people, angels, creatures. We praise the Lamb who was slain. We draw near, press into the throne, and we give you all praise, give you all honor. God, and, and even as I think of the, the heavenly assembly, I think of all the other churches gathered in our area today. Because they want to see you. They want to know you. They want to praise you. They want to be satisfied in you. They want to, want to be saved and strengthened. We pray for them. We pray for the ministers of the gospel and other pastors. We pray for the other church members and all the people that are gathering. God, would you meet in some powerful way by, the, by, by your Holy Spirit your people there and now especially we pray here with us in these moments it's in Jesus name that we ask these things Amen well we've been in Luke and we have uh, seen a lot up to this point um and we are now entering into this song, this hymn of praise that's coming from Zechariah. And, and it's probably good for us not to forget where he's come, right? The first time we hear his voice, it's used to doubt and interrogate God and his promise. And then, as we looked at last week through this times of, of silence and humbling, God kind of empties him of himself. And when he fills him with the Holy Spirit now in our text, as we read, now what starts coming out when we hear his voice again is this elevated song of praise. God is carrying Zechariah along whether he wants to be or not. He began with, oh, come on, no way, you couldn't do this. To He's doing it in spite of my unbelief. He's doing it in spite of my sin. Look at him go. This God is so great. And even as we were singing in this room, I just thought, man, this is a room full of Zacharias, right? People that God has, has emptied of, of ourselves and filled us with his spirit. And that's why we fill this room with praise. Because he has moved us along the same lines as Zechariah. From the doubts, the unbelief, the sin, to this, this, this salvation, if you will, in this praise, place of fullness. Uh, we're going to look this morning um, at this hymn. And in case you 
you probably noticed, it, it is like, what, most of it is one massive sentence. <laughs> it's like it's just pouring out of him. So even reading it is tough in terms of punctuation. It's just like, okay, there's no spot to like take a breath here. But that kind of gives you a sense of the joy that's exploding. But we're going to make our way through this. Um, and regrettably, we're not going to be able to look at all of it in detail. But I have on your handout there kind of what we're going to be doing, what we'll be looking at. First, our future and past tense redemption, taken from verses 67 to 69. And that'll make sense as we get to it in a moment. And then second, we'll look at this historical basis for the redemption, verses 70 to 73, and the eternal goal of this redemption in the final verses there, the second part of verse 73 to 79. So, we're going to begin with verses 67 to 69, and what I want to do here um, is actually make a note at the start, something that, that we might be prone to kind of gloss over, uh, but given the state of, of many churches in our day, I, I thought it would be wise for me just to point this out. This is it's kind of a, a, a passionate subject for me, so if it seems out of left field, forgive me. But it, it is in the text, and I want you to see this. Um, here's particularly what I want what I want us to see. The Spirit of God leads always, always leads us towards the Word of God, and the Word of God always leads us towards. The Spirit of God. Here's why I I, I get passionate about this. Um, A lot of times, what you have in churches, depending on traditions and things, you try to kind of pin the two against one another. You kind of have the the hyper, perhaps charismatic over here who say, okay, we just want the Spirit. And when we start doing these Bible study things and we start getting all into the doctrine, it just, it it feels like a dead book. We want to be, you know, we want to have the tears fallen and the hands raised. And we want, we want the Spirit. That's the Spirit. We want that. And then you have people over here, you might call them the hyper-scholastic, right? And they're looking over there going, okay, no, 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 no. We, the Spirit's just kind of chaotic. It's kind of like you can't pin it down. You don't know what's going on. We're, we're going to study the book. We want the doctrine. We want the book. <laughs> we'll make sure we got... And so they got the mind thing going on. But in the economy of God, the way that God works, the two always work together. They always work together. It's why we read in John 4.23, we worship the Father in spirit and truth. I love the fact that's coming out of your life. Yeah, you finished it for me. That's great. Spirit and truth. They're not opposed, right? Or think about this. Paul in Ephesians 6.17 says that we take the sword of the spirit which is what? What's the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God. The two work together. The relationship between God's Spirit and God's Word is not hostile, but, bear with me, it's maybe a big word, it is synergetic. You know what I mean by that? means that the that they kind of come together, the two work together to form something greater than the sum of their parts. There's this synergy between God's Word and His Spirit. So, you're going, where are you getting this? When Zechariah 
verse 67, is filled with the Holy Spirit. When he's filled with the Holy Spirit, what results? What happens? I won't have time to flesh all this out for you, but please take my word for it. If you have a study Bible, you'll see it plainly. Or if you have the cross-reference section, you'll see it plainly. What happens is, when he's filled with the Spirit, he starts to see God's current activity in line with all his ancient words. He starts seeing life through the lens of, of, of God's revelation, God's Word. And so in his hymn, it is just infused with, with Old Testament quotations and allusions, references. It's just filled with this stuff. Because when we are filled with the Spirit, God's Word just starts to come alive for us. It's not that we leave it. And we go do something else. It's that we start to see life in light of it. And God applies it to us in powerful ways. I'll get off my soapbox. (laughs) The implication though is plain. God's spirit and God's word have been inseparable partners. From the first day of creation. His word goes forth, spirit hovering over the deep. And he makes what that word uh, says happen. Right? from the first day of creation, through redemption, and on into consummation. And it is this way here today, inseparable partners. That's why oftentimes I pray, this word is going out, please let your spirit come. And give us ears to hear it. Give us hearts to feel it. I believe that's how God meets His people. Word and spirit. So, The Spirit fills Zechariah and he prophesies. And in this prophetic hymn, he begins by describing God's gracious activity. Okay? And he gives us kind of three action verbs there in, in these verses. What we, what we see him say, and I'll, these are the three that I'm, I'm, I'm seeing. He says, God has visited his people. You see that? redeemed His people and raised up a horn of salvation for His people. Three action verbs of God. Visited, redeemed, raised up. The basic sense of these three is that God has come. He's come. He's set free. And He's, he's, he's done it through this Davidic Messiah. You say... Davidic Messiah and horn? What is all that? Let me just tell you what the horn kind of symbolized when he's talking about a horn. The idea is it's kind of that, 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 that strong piece of an animal that they would fight with. So this kind of sign of strength and victory. And this horn of salvation being raised up in the house of David recalls Psalm 132 verse 17 which anticipates the Messiah sprouting like a horn from David's house to deliver his people. So that's what I'm saying. The basic sense is God has come. He, he has set us free. And He's doing it through this Messiah. This Davidic Messiah, Jesus. He's the horn. Now, you're oppressed, you're burdened. This is wonderful news. But something seems terribly wrong with the grammar, if you noticed in our text. 
something seems terribly wrong with the grammar. It's, it's a bit, um, it's a bit surprising. It's a bit confusing because these three things, these three actions describe something that God is going to do in the future. It would seem to me. And yet, they are spoken of here as if they've already happened in the past. You can check the Greek, it's past tense. (laughs) And you look at this, you go, wait a minute, okay. Visited, redeemed, raised up. Zechariah, Christ hasn't even been born yet. He's still in the womb of Mary at this point. Visited, redeemed, raised up. How are we getting this? Shouldn't it have more been like, okay, God, you will visit, you will redeem, and you will raise up this Messiah. We're going to see it happen. You're getting your grammar wrong, Zechariah. You're getting ahead of God here. But Zechariah, filled by the Spirit, I think, is highlighting for us a precious truth. Here it is. What God plans to do, what God promises to do, is already done. The future tense is made past tense because of the unshakable stability of God's plan and promise. His will and word. Because what He says will come to pass, will come to pass, the future tense can be turned into the past tense. This is why, to give you an example, and there are many in the Scriptures of this sort of thing, but Romans 8.30, Paul would say this about Christians. Those whom He, God, justified, He also glorified past tense. Those whom He justified, He also glorified past tense. Now, how many of us are sinners in this room? Okay, right here. How many of us are are, are saved by grace, justified by faith alone in our Savior? Right here. I pray that's most of us, right? Oh, we lay ourselves down. How many of us in this room are glorified? How many of us in this room are just shining like like the sun? You know? Resurrection body, walking in glory, spotless and blameless. You look at me go, okay, surely Nick's not walking in glory. Just ask my wife. And yet, past tense, justified, glorified. If you have been justified in the Savior by His blood, by His resurrection, you will follow with Him into glory. And it is so certain that you can draw that back from the future and speak of it like it's past tense reality. Even Paul, just a few verses earlier, lets us know, hey, this glory is in the future. Verse 25, he says, we're hoping for what we cannot see. He says, we're waiting for it with patience. And yet he says, glorified. It's done. 
This future tense reality is declared in the past tense by faith. If he's planning to do it, if he's promised to do it, it is already done. Now, this is one of the great works of the Spirit of God in the heart of a believer, to give this sort of assurance in the Word and the promises of God. And this is also one of the great calls on every Christian to fight for faith, right? You guys sat under Steve Fuller. That was one of his big things. From what I gather, it's the name of his blog, right? So, so you're, you're, you're not unfamiliar with this idea, but we are laboring. We are laboring to embrace, to embrace the promises of God in such a way that the future tense becomes past tense by faith so that in the present we can then walk in the fullness of His power and peace. So are you there? It seems that many Christians, including myself, um, at times you can see the future and it just seems so far off. It seems so irrelevant to this moment and what you're dealing with. It seems like a pie in the sky, head in the sand sort of thing. Or if you are certain of it, you're certain that it's way out there. (laughs) And we're just left to survive back here. So funny, the examples that Ian brought up were some of the things I had even in my notes. I was thinking about what people might be going with, going through where they feel like they have to survive here, like bank account starting to dry up or hungry kids or your boss or whatever. Is it how does that get back here and affect me now? <laughs> God gives his spirit to help us turn the future to past in our hearts. The peace and joy of that day starts to stream back to us in this day. And it's my prayer that he'll use this sermon, our time together, towards that end. We'll be with Zechariah at the end of all this and experiencing the future tense made past tense by faith. Now, second heading I have there under ver- for verses 70 to, to 73, the first part. Um, the historical basis of this redemption. Zechariah begins with this focus on a future and and past tense redemption. And with the mention of David at the end of verse 69, he starts to turn towards um, the historical basis for this redemption. And what we see is that he's moved by the Spirit to kind of recount this deep root system of God's redemptive activity. He's going to draw out four broad lines, kind of focuses us in on four broad lines of Old Testament revelation. It's what we see when he's talking about, listen, (laughs) this is prophecy coming to pass here. You see that word there. You get promise coming to pass, covenant, oath, all these lines of Old Testament revelation coming in to this moment. Prophecy, promise, covenant, and oath. But, He narrows from from these kind of broad lines onto two Old Testament figures. We already saw David there, and we're actually going to focus for a moment um, on Abraham, who appears in verse 73. 
So he's showing how what God is doing here in this redemption is connected to old. And this is common in these two chapters of Luke. And we've done this a lot. And especially with Abraham and David being two of the... Am I losing this? Got it? I feel like I just went out. Um, two of the, the lofty figures in, in covenant history of the Old Testament, they show up a lot here. So I'm not going to always go into every detail at all. Um, but there's something with Abraham that I think uh, is important for us to get to move us ahead in our text here. There's a context uh, that is alluded to in verses 73 to 74 of our text um, that would be helpful to revisit. And what we're going to do is go back to Genesis 22. I would like you to go there. Genesis, again, is the first book in the Bible, so you should have no trouble finding it. Uh, chapter 22. The particular um, overlap with uh, and kind of connection from our text to, to Genesis 22 is in verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 22, but I want to read the whole story. It's a familiar story, is powerful, and I want to place those verses uh, in their context. So let's, if you're there, let's uh, go ahead and, and read that. It says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father, and, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? What a crazy moment. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns, or by his horns. (laughs) And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, Now, here comes the oath, guys, alluded to in our text. The oath sworn to Abraham regarding being delivered from enemies and other things. Here's the overlap. We just got the context. Here's the oath. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There's so much we could talk about there. We're going to, I'm going to restrict my comments to what's most relevant for the text we're studying at hand. This oath represents the climax of, of God's dealing with Abraham. Okay? It advances basically every promise and covenant God had made with Abraham up to this point to a place of irreversible assurance. By myself I have sworn. He makes an oath. The author of Hebrews, writing about this moment in Genesis 22, says in Hebrews 6, 17 and 18, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled to refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The idea is, because God cannot lie, His nature, and because He has therefore also taken this oath and sworn by Himself, the second thing, we can be absolutely certain that what He has said to Abraham about this offspring, being blessing and freedom from from enemies and all these things, will come to pass. It's this climax And it's what is alluded to in our text by Zechariah. But note the context in which this oath is made back in Genesis 22. That's why I wanted to read it. Note the context. What do we have? The almost sacrifice of a beloved only son and a substitute sacrifice in his place. A beloved only son sacrifice and a substitute sacrifice. This is the context, excuse me, whereby God says Abraham to Abraham, I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will deliver you from your enemies. I will mediate blessing to the nations through your offspring. That is the context of this oath. 
substitutionary sacrifice of an only son. (laughs) So, when we come back to our text, and we start looking now at verses 73, the second part, to 79 what we start to see is that this background clearly hints at the fact that the Messiah, the beloved only Son of God, the promised offspring of Abraham, in order to work this future and past tense redemption for us, is going to have to die in our place. There's substitutionary sacrifice in the background here. And I say this, Because as we move on to consider the eternal goal of this redemption, it's debatable what Zechariah himself even thought he meant by the words coming out of his mouth. (laughs) You see this throughout the the whole gospel of, of Luke, where these guys are in the spirit saying things at a higher level than they actually comprehend in themselves. It is quite possible, um, even probable, that had Zechariah lived long enough to watch what the Messiah would do, what Jesus would do when he, when he, when he lived and, and, and moved among them, it's quite, it, it's probable that he would have gone, I, I don't, I don't see the redemption and the deliverance and the, <laughs> and all the stuff I was hoping for. Uh, I don't get how, the words the Spirit inspired in me correlate to the reality I'm watching in his life. I say it's probable that he would be confused by this because we, 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 we look at guys like John and we look at the apostles and the rest of the scriptures and they don't get it. They don't seem to get it. There's this confusion because these words Zechariah is saying about freedom from oppression and enemies and the hand of those who hate us, all this sort of stuff by the Davidic king, it could have easily trafficked in the expectations of of, of Israel in that day. Which is, we need a political figure to give us political redemption, freedom, salvation. This redemption, salvation, deliverance in their minds would come from Roman oppression. Get us out from under their yoke. And this is why, this is why when, when, when John is, is, is going before Jesus, John the Baptist, preparing his way, and then he ends up in a prison cell with a death sentence on his head, quite literally, he says, are you the one? Or should we look for another? Is this, this is what I was going before, preparing the way for this? Dying in a hole? Are you the one? Are you the Christ? Or should I look for another? Suffering has a way of, of stimulating our doubts, doesn't it? Is Jesus really good? Is He really powerful? Because if He was, I'm going through this right now. Why? Is he the answer? I'm hurting. We can relate. We can relate. Or even at the end of this gospel, you see the apostles, when the women come back stoked that that, that Jesus is raised from the dead. You want to know what they say? These guys that will eventually become, you know, heroes in the faith, essentially. 
landmark men in the mission of God. This is what they say to the women in, in, in uh, Luke 24, verse 11. These words seem to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. It's just an idle tale. You guys are just talking. We don't believe this. It's not raised from the dead. They were following the same logic as the two um, on the road to Emmaus, right? We had hoped that He would be the one to redeem Israel. Redemption. We had in our minds the idea of how this redemption would work out through the Messiah. We'd hoped He was going to be the one to do it, but He's dead. So clearly, no redemption. At least not the redemption they were expecting. So here's where the backstory of Genesis 22 comes in, right? It helps us in our interpretation and orients us properly to these words that, that, um, that Zechariah is speaking because what we get is that this redemption prophesied, promised, covenanted, sworn, it's going to come through a substitute, a sacrifice, even a beloved only son, offspring of Abraham. God is aiming for a deliverance deeper than Rome. Okay? And now, I know that there are some in this room who are in really hard spots. Right? And um, I know everything in us in some of those moments cries out, It's Rome! The problem with my life is Rome! It's the circumstances. It's the oppression. It's the physical stuff that's coming at me. It's my health problems that won't go away. Or it's my, forgive me, it's my boy that won't get better. Or it's my job. What a, I just don't feel satisfied. I want redemption there. I want Rome gone. And those are very real. Those are very real problems. Very real. Rome hurts and oppresses and burdens. And God cares. Oh my goodness, does He care. He said, I know this stuff is real and it really hurts and I'm going to deal with it in time. I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eye. You better know we're headed not just for spiritual redemption, but physical. It's going to happen. i got to go deeper here. We're not just going to deal with symptoms here. i got to go after the cancer. His plan is holistic. He's going to redeem both soul and body, believe me. But it moves from the spiritual into the physical. So, disguised a bit beneath some of the nationalistic and earthy language of of these verses in our text is an indication that this Messiah has come to enter into combat with the three most basic 
ancient opponents of the people of God, the ones we really need to go, Jesus is going after. We think Rome, he's thinking deeper and bigger than Rome. Namely, Satan, sin, and death. And they show up in our text in that order. And I think for good reason. Because that is the historical unfolding. Satan deceiving the author of lies, the the, the murderer from the beginning, deceiving Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinning. And through them, death spreading to all. So, these are inherently connected. The opponents come at you all at once. If the Messiah is going to redeem us, He's going to have to deal with all of them. You don't just pick death. You don't just pick the physical effect. You've got to go back, up the roots, or down the roots. Get it there. So in our text, we see He delivers us from our enemies, particularly, I'm saying, our, and I'll show you in a moment, our arch enemy, namely Satan. And that you kind of see there in verse 74. You see that He's come to forgive us of our sins. Verse 77. The forgiveness of our sins because of the tender mercy of our God. And then you see that He's come to bring light and life to those sitting in the shadow of death. Life is going to come to the dead places by this Messiah. We watch this play out in the rest of Luke's Gospel. We watch, we watch this mission against these, these basic ancient foes. We watch this play out in the rest of Luke's Gospel. If we're, we're wondering, okay, if we want to see that he's come to deal with Satan, here's our example. Consider the fact that the moment Jesus enters into his public ministry, he makes a beeline for the combat field. Luke 3, he is baptized, filled, anointed with the Spirit. And then he goes, where? Immediately, Matthew would tell us. Luke records it the same way. Luke 4, to the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil, head to head. This is the enemy he has come to throw down. That's Luke 10, 18 to 19, referring to Satan as the enemy. Of all enemies. He's not come to make war on Caesar, but the spiritual forces of evil behind Rome, behind Greece, behind Babylon, behind Assyria, behind Egypt, behind even Israel and my heart. Like Ephesians 2 3 says, we're all children of wrath following the course of this world by nature, the prince of the power of the air. That's where we're all at. You've got to go there if He's going to set us free. That He has come to deal with sin. We watch this in Luke 5, 20. It's amazing. You, you, you have this paralytic who's lowered down from the roof. You remember this? His friends, I mean, God bless him. You want to have friends like this. They're ripping off the roof to get their friend down to, to, to Jesus, this paralytic. This, we know he can heal this guy. We just got to get him to Jesus. 
So they're lowering him down. And here Jesus looks at him. This is what he says. He says, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Luke 520. You just imagine everyone sitting back going, Sins? We want we, we want his body healed. He's a he's, he's paralyzed. We're just talking about sins. Body. Jesus goes, hey, listen. I'm going to heal the body. Just give me a moment. But behind the death and the crippling and the problems with the body is something even deeper. Namely, sin. Satan, sin. And then you watch. He's going to take down death. He's going to take down death. That's what you see, Luke uh, 24, 39. When he shows up after his resurrection to his disciples and he says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In other words, this is my body. I'm not just like leaving the body behind. Okay, death took my body and that's it. He said, I am going to put death to death. And I will raise up my body, like Paul would say, imperishable. Touch me. It's a body. This is why uh, Paul would say, Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. No more dominion over Him. Christ would deal with all three of these ancient foes at one and the same time on the cross. We know this is what He's after. Now I want to just basically end here showing you how He does it. On the cross, this beloved only Son of God, this offspring of Abraham, the second and greater Isaac, is going to have his father putting wood on his back. And he's going to walk up that hill with his daddy. And that knife is going to be raised over him. Except there's going to be no voice in heaven on that day calling the blade off. Because all that was happening here and all the redemption that God had promised was contingent upon the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior. If He is really going to take down Satan's sin and death and deliver us from our enemies, this is the way He's going to do it. He's going down. He's going down. God has finally provided the Lamb. (laughs) The Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And what seemed to be the hour of darkness, right? The, 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 The triumph of Satan's sin and death was truly their undoing. And this is what any good physician knows, right? If you're going to deal with the problem, if you're going to deal with the cancer, you can't just poke at the skin. You've got to go in with the scalpel. You've got to dig your scalpel into the tumor. That's where the good physician is going. 
He's going deep in. He's, he is letting Satan, sin, and death have their way with him. I'm going down. And when he rises three days later, he has the tumor in his hand. Healing, redemption is possible because of what he did. This is how we're delivered from our enemies. And this is how we're forgiven of our sins. This is how some of us, though we may even be put to death, not a hair of our heads will perish, he says. Satan, sin, death, no more victory over us who are in Christ. Read your Revelation 12. And we'll close here. I think this text, Revelation 12, 7 through 11, is a bit of a debate, but I think it's referring to Christ's victory at the cross. And it brings all of this together for us so powerfully. This is what it says, verse 7. We'll read down to verse 11. Now war arose in heaven. I still hear pages turning, I'm sorry. I'll let you get there. Think about the moment on the cross here and watch what happens. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon who is the serpent of old, Satan. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, listen to this, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Satan, the accuser of God's people, has been thrown down. Love that out of the heavenly courtroom. Thrown down because of the cross. Get out of the courtroom. My sins. Satan can no longer press charges against me before God. The accuser has nothing to accuse you or me on anymore. The sentence that my sins deserved, death, has been served by a substitute, by Jesus. And that's why it says, we conquer Him, Satan, with the blood of the Lamb. So much more power than, 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 than the two on the road to Emmaus or John or Zechariah could have dreamed of in the blood of Jesus Christ. The victory, it's ours there. 
And regarding death, think of this. Even if Satan hounds us unto death, which he might do, he is only hounding us quicker unto glory. (laughs) This is why when you read about the martyrs in the book of Revelation, where do they wake up? In the presence of God, <laughs> with robes washed white, where, where, where we, we, we read that, that, that Jesus, the Lamb, is going to be their shepherd. He's going to guide them to springs of living water, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Satan may hound us here on earth, even unto death, but all He's doing is hounding us quicker unto glory and joy. Satan's sin and death because of what Jesus did. Rising with the tumor. Going down into the cancer. Rising with the tumor. No longer our concerns. Redemption. It's happened. He has visited. He has redeemed. Through the Messiah. He raised up. I know there's real stuff going on. Enemies loose on all sides, it feels like. Marriage falling apart, health, whatever it is. I'm telling you, Christ has taken care of the biggest, the greatest, the most ancient, the most basic opponents of your soul. And He takes all that stuff and is going to use it for your good in the end. Just hear Zechariah one more time. He has visited. He has redeemed. And He's done it through the Messiah. He's raised up. Let's look there and that God grant us the grace, power of the Spirit of the risen Christ, to turn that future tense into past tense in these moments. That we might walk, even in the midst of the valley, the shadow of death, with His peace with His joy. Amen? Let's pray. God, we ask that You, I mean, these are unseen realities. We get glimpses of it. But we're looking in a mirror dimly. God, if we're going to see the glory that is ours, we're going to experience the joy of that day today. You've got to come down. That's why you send your spirit back. That's why we're united with you. And you could say we're already seated with you. We need you to do this, Lord. There are real problems, real problems you're going to deal with in the end but that you're calling us to walk through now by faith. I pray you give us eyes to see, God, your victory. In Jesus' name.